Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 42. I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here as usual with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. Um, one of the things that we've started doing recently is to call out people who uh, uh, who have been supporting us on Patreon, because Patreon is the way that we kind of run this podcast, and we're really grateful for all the people who have helped us out. Um, and so um, we started calling out people to, who, uh, who have supported us, and uh, we want to call it a new person every week. So Hillary, who do we have today? <laughs> yeah, so drum roll. <laughs> um, this week we wanted to call out uh, Kara Wu. So she's been a longtime supporter and friend of the show um, and super appreciative uh, super appreciative of her support, um, ongoing support, always has lots of nice comments and feedback. Um, and so, yeah, and so uh, just so everyone knows the levels, um, we do call outs for any level of Patreon support. Um, one, two, or three dollars a month, and or an episode. And so, if you one dollar an episode, you get the shout out and our our gratitude. Uh, two dollars an episode, you get the sh- a shout out possibility, our gratitude, and also um, you get a sticker mailed to you, the exclusive not so standard deviations hex sticker, and a handwritten note from me. Um, and then at three dollars an episode, you get all of that plus. Um, access to our outtakes, <laughs> which usually usually are commentary on technology choices and or my cat doing things. So Yeah, the outtakes are awesome. Very exciting. <laughs> exciting content, yeah. <laughs> Should we just start talking about it? This can just yeah. Yeah, tell me about Alexa. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, the paradigm shifting device. <laughs> And I actually, I actually really feel that way. Like when the moment that I saw the ad for it, I was like, I have to have that. Like this is a game changer. <laughs> did you feel that way when you saw it, or no? No, I did not feel that way at all. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, they yeah. had some like creepy aspects just from the get go. Without before it was even like people had it in their hands. I thought yeah. so. But um, the camera, are you just not into the camera generally? Well, the whole like you can just call someone and the, and like they don't even have to like answer it kind of thing. I mean, I know there's like yeah. they have some safeguards there, but um, yeah, and you can just uh, drop in, yeah, yeah. I've used the Echo before, and I was not. It was fine. Like I, it wasn't. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but um, I think whether you like the Echo or not seems to depends a lot on like whether how much into the ecosystem you're in. You're you are. Yeah. You know? That's yeah, yeah. That's true. Although oddly, I have not wanted to buy the Google Home, even though I am like fully immersed in the Google ecosystem. But I guess I'm not for media. That's the one thing that I decided to go with Amazon. I have like a few movies I bought on Google Play, but for the most part, they're on Amazon. And so the fact that I can say Alexa, play Bridesmaids, and like it just starts playing Bridesmaids is like. That's like life changing to me. <laughs> but but you would watch it on that little screen. So here's the thing. I there's multiple answers to that. I would never watch a new movie that way. Like oh. no way. That's not like I'm not doing it to watch the movie, but I very frequently, I would say it's like my MO is to put on a movie and play it in the background while I'm doing chores and stuff at Oh home. yeah. I understand. Yeah, and so that's like, this is game changing for that. (laughs) In fact, even before, and another way that I use it in a similar way is when I'm going to sleep. I was saying this last night because I was like, this is either really great or really terrible. (laughs) If you like, if you like watching movies when you're going to sleep, it's great. If you've been like trying to cut down the habit, like, (laughs) <laughs> you're you will lose this battle because <laughs> okay. you can just be in bed and you can be like alexa play a movie and it like does <laughs> but you know are you watching it at that time or no and so this is the thing even in baltimore i actually remember thinking about it a lot back then so this is now what like eight years ago i thought a lot about whether like if there was a way that i could extract the audio tracks from movies and play those through like my iPod Nano at the time, right? Yeah, and like, and like, put them like just have a headphone on when I went to sleep because I was like, oh, I, it's not that like I'm closing my eyes and actually having the screen on is like too bright, and so, but I like want the movie. I, I'll do this with movies I've watched a million times, and right. so like I know what's going on, and it's just kind of like comforting and like you don't get all you know wound up in your head. I mean, there are healthier ways to achieve this, like 
mindfulness and meditation, but this is like this is like the cheap and easy way. <laughs> I think the movie industry is like they are missing out on a huge opportunity here, which is to release audio only versions of their movies. Yeah. No, well now they don't have to because now like Alexa I was like, this is perfect because I never wanted to watch it anyway. It's like playing on this tiny screen across the room and I can just say go and it, yeah. So that dawned on me last night that I was like, because this has been something I've been doing since I was probably 10. Um, And I watched inexplicably for reasons I don't even understand now as an adult. I watched The American President like every night for years. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it is a good movie. I mean, (laughs) to be fair. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good movie. I could probably recite the entire movie to you. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that I do a similar thing with TV shows. Uh, Not so much with movies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do it with TV also. Yeah, for sure. Like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. I do the same thing with The West Wing. Like, I'll turn it on. I've seen, like, every episode, you know. And Oh, funny. You know, ironically, I've not seen The West Wing. Oh, really? <laughs> which which I really should because I it's, like, essentially, like, a TV, like, adaptation of The American President. Yeah, right? I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, the same cast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the confusing thing is that Martin Sheen is in both, but he doesn't play the same role. <laughs> yeah, he's the president, right, in yeah. The West Wing. Yeah. yeah. Whereas he's, like, the guy who's very decidedly not the president in The American President. Right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so this felt game-changing to me. And also, just the technology for Alexa has improved, like, I would say, like, an order of magnitude. You mean, like, the um, service itself? Yeah, just like the speed that she's responding at. And then the biggest one for me is that it's like if I were in bed, like flip the wrong way. And I was like, Alexa, turn off the lights. I would have to like flip over and say it. And that was kind of, you know, I I don't want to have to do that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I want to have to just think it and have it happen. (laughs) Anyway, the voice reception for this one is like much much better where I can, I don't have to flip over now and I can like from the whole other side of my apartment I can say it in just a normal talking voice and she'll hear across the God, I mean it's not a big apartment but she can hear across the apartment <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so I don't this is like so exciting to me yeah the, anyway. the problem I have with those kinds of devices is that like if you live in a place with multiple rooms it's like it's a bit of a conundrum like I know I thought about that. That this is part of my like small living manifesto. <laughs> oh, it's a manifesto now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like um, <laughs> Well, it's just like it is true that things are much easier when you're living in, like for example, my ethernet solution would not work in your living situation, right? That's correct. <laughs> I can just have yes. one cord that's about 25 feet long and it reaches wherever it needs to go. Like I just think no that problem. a lot of tech products are designed with like this small home in mind yeah <laughs> like, like the san francisco apartment in mind yeah, right right like oh are you like a single 20 or 30 something living in the bay area like we've engineered this for you because that's who we are all all are <laughs> yeah so i get that although there's some interesting like wi-fi like house-wide wi-fi solutions right and i feel like there's a few products that care about that yeah, no, no I, yeah, yeah, it's not everything. It's a lot. So. Yeah, and I know a lot of people who just have a different, like, have an Echo Dot in every room. Right, yeah, which is clearly what that was meant for. But, like, I don't know. For me, I, like, I carry my phone around, so I just, I can talk to it wherever it is. Yeah. When, it's funny because when I'm in a big place, like a bigger house, I get really mad because I don't carry my phone around. In fact, I usually just, like, leave it by the front door so I don't, like, use it when I'm at home. And um, I, I, if I'm somewhere else, I'll get really mad because I'll leave it like two floors up and I'll be like, I have to go get my phone, like walk up the stairs, walk up the stairs. And I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> well, you know, I, no, I was going to say the thing that changed it for me was, uh, was having a child. Um, oh, right. Because yeah. there's so many instances where you're like stuck somewhere, like you're, like you're stuck, like, you know, when they're a baby, like you might be, they like fall asleep and then you're like holding them and you can't move, right? Um, <laughs> there's so many instances like that where you're just like, I just need to have the phone on me at all times <laughs> so that like I'll always be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good point. Yeah. You're like stuck somewhere. <laughs> you're always like stuck somewhere, you know, it's like, it's kind of yeah. weird anyway. 
That's funny. Is that true? Because no, now your son's a bit older. Is that it, still true? No, it's not nearly as true. No, it's but like um, it's but when he was a baby, it was it happened all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I, it was funny because that came up too. I like tweeted out a photo of the Alexa and someone was like, your counter is so much cleaner than mine. I was like, wanted to reply like, yep, that's not having kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's, it's a big divide. Like, I'm sure when I have kids, the counter will look like crap. Like, no, yeah, no judgment. <laughs> I think of all the things that suffer, the counter is not the thing that suffers when you have a kid. It's like the entire rest of your house that suffers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, uh, well, this is a whole nother side chat. Like, it seems hard to keep a place clean with, like, just me and my cat. I can't imagine, <laughs> like, with, like, children going and, like, disrupting every. I think just your standards change a lot for, like, what clean looks like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, two, a few more final thoughts on Alexa, uh, which was... So we talked about the movie capability, <laughs> but the thing that I was actually excited about when I saw it and was like, oh, this is a game changer is just the, it's like a very low um, barrier to entry for video chat. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of my parents, both of whom have like begrudgingly gotten iPhones recently and are both not so happy about it. <laughs> did, what did they have before? Uh, they had like not smartphones before. Oh, <laughs> come on roger like this is not that uncommon for that generation uh, yeah i suppose you're right okay <laughs> that was like the most concerned <laughs> oh <laughs> anyway Go on. i don't know why that was so funny <laughs> anyway they're both it's funny they both uh they both have these sort of like I, I don't know. I don't know why. My mom's an academic, and so I feel like it's kind of the academic, like, I don't need this newfangled thing. And the weird thing with my dad is that he's really into new technologies, and he has, like, a super fancy, like, 3D TV or whatever they are. And But, like, this was just one aspect of technology he did not want to participate in. <laughs> and so... After I, I, I got him on Google Hangouts first, and now they both begrudgingly. He actually got lost during a hike once. It was really dangerous. He was hiking alone. And so I think after that, it was like, okay, like I need a GPS and a map like yeah. in a phone situation. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so like I, I would never dream. I, don't, I have Android, so we couldn't even like FaceTime that easily. But I just... I mean, I, I like ha my dad also got one <clears throat> and I just like I feel that this will be such an easier way to video chat where it's just like, oh, OK, here is the device and like it will be in this part of the house and, you know, we will be able to video chat. We can set up times to just like pop in and say hi really quickly versus right. like, OK, download this app and I'm going to have to download this one. And like you have to set up a webcam like he has a desktop, not a laptop. So oh, it's, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, and I feel like that is true. I mean, millennials these days, like, like video chats so much more than I do. I feel like that's like a weird thing that people younger than me are really comfortable with. But um, even for me, I feel like with friends and stuff, it'll just be easier to like pop in that way. So, so we'll see. I can see the appeal of the video chatting feature. I, um, yeah. it's not a big deal for me since we're like, my whole family is an Apple family, so we just FaceTime each other. But um, yeah, but I can see that though. Like, but that's like the that's the advantage of like the closed garden, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, but no, but I think though having it always set up at the right angle and in a dedicated spot, I think that has benefit to itself. And actually, I was on a hike with some people from Amazon, and one of them said, "Oh yeah, it's like the new landline," <laughs> which is funny. We were just talking about landlines, but. Um, but I can see that where it's like, you know, you have your cell phone and you have FaceTime as like mobile video chatting. And this is like your at home video chatting capability. Yeah. No, I, t I totally agree. And I think like to a certain extent, like phones have just gotten too complicated. And so yeah. you need to like kind of break out one feature of it um, mm -hmm. to, to, just to make it simpler. Um, at the risk of um, having an entire episode where we don't talk about data science, there was one, um, there's one thing I wanted to bring up last time that I forgot. Um, uh -huh. which is that they're turning podcasts into TV shows now. Did you know that? 
Oh, I think I saw your tweet about this. Oh, did oh I, I can't okay I didn't remember yeah. that. This isn't the first time because they actually made this American Life into a TV show. No, but that was like a that the TV show was just like the same as the radio show. It was just like on TV. Um, yeah. But this is like a dramatized version of the podcast. So like the oh. people in the podcast are not involved. You know. Wow. Cool. So they're making <laughs> they're making a TV show actually with Zach Braff uh, of the Startup Podcast. Um, Whoa! Yeah. Interesting. So they're gonna like the stories that they tell. They're going to dramatize those into like are are they gonna even play audio from the podcast ever, or is it just gonna be no no? They, so apparently, the people who who made the podcast have very little input actually, um, and um, wow. they're, but they're gonna take like the episodes from the first season of that podcast and like and just kind of like work them into TV into a TV show. <laughs> That's awesome. So I. I I was wondering, like, who would play you on the Not So Standard Deviations po- TV show? A really good question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to Kramer this one and be like, I should play me. <laughs> <laughs> you would be good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that Seinfeld where he like tries out for Kramer? Oh, that's right. Yeah, in, in, <laughs> like for his for like the TV show that they're making for NBC. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who to play you either. I feel like I feel like I need some time to do research, and then we should come back with suggestions. Maybe this will be our homework for ne- for the next episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, that's it for that. So on to the real episode now. <laughs> yeah. So should, you want to talk about data science related topics? Yeah, yes. I would love to talk about that. <laughs> right. So I think we had two, uh, at least two. One was this Wired article on site reliability engineering. Um, yeah. And the other one was this uh, article. It was not about Peter Norvig, but it quoted him at length. So. Um, yeah. I guess, well, I feel like I have more to talk about with the first one. So we could s- start with the second one and have that be faster and then go to the first one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, cool. So you actually forwarded me this article. It was in the Australian, I guess, version of Computer World. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, someone brought it up at work. So I yeah. I was like, oh, that's, that's related to what we've been talking about the podcast. It was this whole article on sort of explainable AI. Um, right. And Which had the name XAI, which I did not know. I didn't know about that either, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like it's actually this whole field of research in AI, which... Makes sense. <laughs> so I, I read the article with fascination because I thought Peter Norvig's comments about trying to explain AI were, were they were interesting, I guess, to say the least to me. Um, because if I can summarize it uh, briefly, his idea was his mm-hmm. his point was that we don't need explainable AI. We don't need to be able to explain how artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms come to the to the predictions or whatever the the outputs that they come to um because it's not like we can do that with humans it's not like we can do that with humans right um and so for and and, i think is a reasonable point he makes is that like you know you can ask someone how did you come to a certain decision and they might tell you something but it might not actually be the reason um Mm -hmm. and so um there's no point in asking people what you do with with humans is you look at the outputs and you look at the data uh, and you see if there are any patterns. So if you're looking for bias or something like that, then you see if like certain things tend to predict uh, certain types of outcomes and then there might be some sort of bias depending on what you're looking for. Um, And so he's Mm -hmm. saying that you should just do the same thing with machine learning. Like what's the point of trying to explain how these machine learning algorithms work uh, when they come in terms of coming to their decisions, uh, just look at the outputs and, you know, and see if it's see if there's any sort of problem, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is right, that kind of right. what you gathered? Yeah, the same. Yeah, and I thought it was fascinating the drawing the parallel to the fact that humans don't really understand how they're making decisions is. I hadn't really thought about that before, but it's a really great point that people are actually really bad at explaining how they're making decisions. Um, I hadn't I hadn't thought about how that would translate into the AI world for sure. Well, so I had two thoughts about this. One was that he seemed to be suggesting that there is potentially another much simpler algorithm <laughs> that can that can do achieve the goals of the machine learning algorithm, but is in fact interpretable, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. If you take the outputs of the machine learning algorithm and you can model them based on, let's say, I don't know, a couple of simple factors like age and maybe race or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. that is all interpretable. Then 
you know, it, it leads. It, I don't. Know, it leads me to question why you would use the machine learning algorithm unless it were somehow dramatically um, different or more accurate. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So that's one. The second is, I, you know, the issue. I, I can see his logic. It's like we could. We should just treat the machines like we treat the people, right? Um, but the mm-hmm. problem is the issue of accountability, right? So there's right. with with people. There's accountability. If there's something that goes wrong, we can hold them accountable. We can um, pass laws and things like that. And I think with machines, it's just not so clear. Like, how do you? You can't really hold the machine accountable. Um, and then, but who you, who do you hold accountable? Is it the programmer? Is it the compute? The co- company? Is it, you know, what is it? And I think we talked a little bit about this before. Um, and uh, that I think breaks the analogy between the, you know, AI and, uh, and computer and, and people, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Well, but what do you mean by accountable? Like you could still have a team that is, you know, monitoring the bias in the algorithm and correcting for it or like, you know, trying to correct for it or, um, like you could have people whose job description is to combat bias in this algorithm and then they would be accountable. They just, they wouldn't be like blamed if something went horribly wrong necessarily. Well, uh, just a simple example. I mean, what if the company that mills the algorithm goes out of business? Right. <laughs> then I there's the, then there's nobody, right? I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, wouldn't that company be Google in this case? <laughs> I guess that's. Well, in, that's in, the issue. in yeah. Peter Norvig's case, yes, and uh, so. Yeah. Uh, but you know, <laughs> so solutions, yeah, for that. <laughs> but I think there are a lot of these uh, niche applications. Like you know, imagine you had a in a hospital, you had a computer system that would diagnose you and like recommend treatments, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like so and suppose I don't know one of the treatments is wrong or in some way or it, it's a bad prediction for you in particular and it harms you you know uh, who yeah, who's accountable right, right, for that right. you know yeah and so like who's taking the Hippocratic oath equivalent right or data science Hippocratic oath in that case and furthermore I mean there is a good example in that weapons of math destruction uh, book by Kathy O'Neill about a woman getting fired as a teacher for exactly that reason like it was right. there was some kind of unexplainable algorithm slash model going on in the background that determined that she was in this like top bottom one percent or something and then she was fired and they lit she was like why did i get fired they had no answers they're like sorry this is what they told us to do and <laughs> so i guess you're right like he was probably his his solution or like the way he was talking about it made sense for a world and i think don't they bring it up in the article some of the the like damaging false false positives like um like the i feel like one that's sort of I, like infamous i'm not even sure how to phrase it like horrible is labeling like black folks as gorillas which is like so terrible and so it's but it's a different there's still a different cost there than like a like drug treatment or something and so if he's thinking about those use cases and he he does talk a lot about like you need to look at the population level not the individual level so he's not doing anything to say to that person like sorry we labeled you this way and that must have had a really negative impact and here's what we're gonna do instead it's like oh well we're correcting this over time so it shouldn't happen in the future is that sort of what you're saying? I, I, I could see his logic. I just, uh, it's a potentially dangerous path to go. I just think that, like, um, we haven't figured out the rules yet, I guess is what it comes down to. Um, yeah. The, but, the societal rules, yeah. I guess, is the, whatever, yeah. I, I agree, although I still very much appreciate him calling out how bad humans are at making decisions. Because <laughs> I think that is, like, something that we should be accounting for more um and i guess yeah like with hypothesis testing framework that is an attempt to formalize it but then there's all these like weird ways people work around it or you know ways that people essentially change the parameters of the hypothesis testing in their favor one way or another um yeah and so 
but it's it isn't i mean i guess it would be in a perfect that's the thing in a perfect world would we know would we want everyone to be able to explain their decision making all the time or would we just say hey this is like a somewhat random process and we can't explain it all and like humans can't explain it machines can't explain it and we're fine with that reality and i guess yeah i wouldn't want to go to that i wouldn't want that to be the accepted status quo i'd rather that we're always trying to describe decision making even if we're very bad at doing it well, yeah, I mean, I think because, yeah, exactly, because in certain areas, um, it probably doesn't matter, I think, um, because nobody cares how certain decisions are, are, are made. Um, I think that's actually most areas, frankly. Um, but in, in but in the areas where it does matter, it like matters a lot, right? That's the problem. Yeah. I think like, like in education or in uh, you know, in medicine or in public, you know, things like that. And, um, and so it, you know, I think it ultimately comes down to, um, if we need to learn something from what's happened, um, how do you do that? Like, you know, how, if you have an algorithm that's completely unknowable, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Then like, mm -hmm. how is it, how do you learn something when things don't work as planned? Um, right. And some, I think in some areas, like if you're selling consumer products, for example, um, there maybe is not so much to learn in the sense that like you just need to improve certain aspects of the product and whatever, um, then you can kind of experiment with that. But in other areas, I think you have to like know what's going on in order to make the improvements. And so mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. anyway, that's my only thought on that. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point. And furthermore, I think maybe like Peter Norvig's like status in his company and his ability to make decisions over the past what how many years like 20 years at least right yeah maybe influencing him as well where it's like oh yeah well this makes a decision and we all go with it because no one ever pushes back on my decision so why would they push back on this <laughs> like whereas the reality is like having the the reason why explainable ai is important the way i've seen it be really important in a functioning organization is that like people like that comes up at these moments of conflict where people don't understand they don't agree with the decision being made and then having the explanation helps to either placate that or define like the grounds like you said like you learn something and then it's like well we think that that's not actually that's weighted wrong and we should make the decision a different way so do you see what i mean like it actually is just like very practical <laughs> for those conversations. And I think Peter Norvig probably hasn't been in those conversations in a while. <laughs> who knows, right? I think, um, yeah, who I, knows? <laughs> I, I mean, I think a lot, of, another example of this kind of thing is like with accidents, right? When accidents happen, there's often a huge investigation that, um, that, that tries to figure out like what were the root causes and what can we do to prevent this from happening again? Um, yeah, the true blameless postmortem there. It's like, go back and refine the system so that someone operating in the system won't make that same error like won't yeah the system won't fail them in that way again right and so like yeah. i don't know what would how would how would you feel if someone came to you and said the the, the decision making process cannot be explained <laughs> yeah right <laughs> right yeah yeah it's not not really helpful so i don't know but uh i i just thought um it was I. It was an interesting response that he that he had to this kind of because it seemed like there's a there's a trend in the direction of explainable AI, uh, and it seemed to be push. He seemed to be pushing against that, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's super interesting, and I was certainly swayed by his. I don't know how to like thought leader. <laughs> he has a way of putting things. I don't. It, it made sense when I was reading it, but you're making great points. Like, <laughs> I should have pushed back internally more or like i it just I, I maybe that's like effective you know pseudo thought leadership is making one really cool point which is like hey decisions aren't easy to make as humans either and we don't actually understand them that well and then that kind of like distracts everyone from the actual point <laughs> <laughs> we, anyway we, we have much to learn from him <laughs> i know i know how to effectively distract information distract attention to cool new thing anyway yes yeah well it's cool to know that this is a real field um and there was a bunch of other resources in the article so i'm looking forward to kind of reading up about it more yeah yeah and i'll put the link in the show notes there cool so do you want to talk about this uh site reliability engineering article yes yeah so this is like i'm actually really really excited about this for a lot of reasons. I guess first, how did you feel reading that article? Did you feel excited, as excited as I did? 
I had some interesting thoughts. I I I I I don't think I necessarily had the same thoughts that you did. <laughs> um, but first of all, it's worth noting that it looks like the article is about a year old. Um, yeah, so, so I'm so glad you brought that up because the reason I read it was because Pocket. Do you know the app Pocket? Yeah. So they started this thing where they have a daily roundup where they choose five articles. And I don't know how they choose them, but some data scientist there does know how they choose them. Um, and that's been a, it's like one of those great, like, oh, this is a perfect match of like a product, some good product decisions and a good algorithm that sort of made it an enjoyable, like I've been reading so many more articles recently. Um, Cause it just gives you five. You can finish them. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, Peter Norvig says we don't, it doesn't matter, you know, how it's chosen. <laughs> right. <laughs> good point. <laughs> well, <laughs> doesn't matter that being said would love more of these i don't know it's, it's been great so far so i don't actually question i don't actually care how they're chosen as there long you go. as they're making my life good anyway the point is thank you if if the data scientist from pocket is listening on the off chance uh thank you to that person <laughs> because it it popped up from this like year old article and i was like hmm, i'll listen to this and then when i was listening oh they also added uh, you can listen to articles rather than read them which oh, cool. i also really like yeah, it's been great. Um, anyway, the point is, read this article, listened to it, and I was like, oh, this is mind-blowing. This is kind of like the bridge that I wanted, um, the bridge I'd been seeking between what I'd been calling operations, but really is DevOps, um, and sort of what we're doing. Um, and I think that, I think there's actually way more parallels than I originally had thought when I was sort of, like, I when I talk about the opinionated analysis development, I'm often saying things like, oh, we, you know, we're borrowing this from the DevOps world, like the idea of blameless postmortems. But I actually think the parallels run much deeper, um, or at least this article sort of illumin illuminated that to me. Um, and so, yeah, I'll just keep going, I guess. <laughs> Well, I, I, maybe I'll just want, I'll say here that um, the, the the whole the whole like kind of engineering and operations that whole like concept that was new to me like I I was not familiar uh, with this yeah. kind of idea um, and so I thought that was very interesting. One of the things my you know I have to say my initial like gut reaction to the article was that like um, it, it was kind of like to me it felt like Google wanting to say that like hey they invented cool stuff too back in the day <laughs> you know like you know like so when like i you know as uh, let's say 15 years ago when like companies were like google and amazon were coming up and they were claiming that they were reinventing the world and like and companies like microsoft and ibm were like hey you know like we have thought about that stuff already you know like you're not the first ones to do that you know um, <laughs> i see what you're saying and i feel this like it's like google doing that like yeah so like everyone maybe everyone's talking about devops now and, and there's all these companies that are kind of built they're building software for it and i kind of felt like this was google's way of being like hey you know we thought about this way back when you know and uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> give us some credit for it. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I read too much into it, but I do feel like Google is falling into that category of company, which is like kind of like an old guard internet company now. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's interesting. So I talked with um, one of our VP of engineering about this concept um, and he had worked at Google and he, he had this funny way of saying it where he was like, yeah, you know, it's like, Google's Australia and they're kind of this island and so they're having evolution over there and we're having evolution over here and it's like the same ecosystem but like different you know species specifically in each <laughs> of the different isolated ecosystems and it's true that I mean we've talked about it before um, Craig Citro who works at Google um, you know and he works specifically on kind of like data science tooling internally and at user what, two years ago, one year, one year ago, he was talking about their sort of internal tooling and it was like my jaw dropped and I was like a tear, like, like went down my cheek and I was just like, <laughs> I can't believe you have that internally and you haven't released it into the world. Right. Like, right yeah. Yeah. Get those species onto the mainland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it is interesting I guess, actually, that probably was the point of the article. That was not what I got from it, just because it was, to me, so I understood, 
the way I was coming into this, my context, as you know, was that I'd been working at Etsy, which was very DevOps heavy. Um, and like John Oswald, the CTO, um, was really one of the people he was like very influential in sort of this blameless postmortem culture, which was going hand in hand with DevOps. And and so I just, I got like a good infusion of the DevOps world while I was working there. Um, and so then I was like, oh, I'm borrowing these concepts and applying them to data science because they just like felt right. I was like, yeah, this blameless postmortem thing seems important. And like, as I was thinking about it more, I was like, yeah, we really focus on like the tooling choices and we shouldn't be doing that. We should be thinking like a little bit more abstractly about the concepts. And so that all became that like opinionated analysis development talk. Um, but <laughs> is that your phone again? That's my landline, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is it really loud? See, no, no, I can hear it, but. <laughs> okay. Should we should just I power through? Should wait until it's over? <laughs> <laughs> should I unplug it? <laughs> Yeah, the, the old trick of like taking it. <laughs> All right, hang on one second. Hang on one second. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's over. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Someone really wants to sell you something. I don't I know. know. I mean, maybe <laughs> life changing opportunity. Anyway, okay. <laughs> it's okay. Alexa's going to start inter interrupting us like any day now. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, are you recording a podcast? Like, <laughs> here's some things I can do. Anyway, the point is so, so. I had already been infused with this culture, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought, I hadn't understood the origin of it. I just sort of, it was like my first job. I was like, this is how the whole world works. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that this was actually kind of a new guard situation that I was in. Right. And so the thing that I got really excited about was the fact that this idea of bringing together the developer and the operations person, it was like, like that whole thing just rang so true to me where I was like, this is exactly like the analysis developer thing too, bringing together developer and analyst and saying, oh, the person who's doing the, who's doing like the analysis should also be kind of like engineering the report, creating the dashboard, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why that felt especially um, exciting was because this so the one of the chief data scientists the chief data scientist at Mango who was at that um, Earl conference put on that Earl conference and his name is Rich, and that's P U G H and I felt really bad that I don't know how to pronounce that. What does say like? Pug? I don't know. Pew, Pew I think maybe. Pew. Yes, I'll take that. Um, so after I gave my opinionated analysis development talk there, he came up and he was like, "Oh, I really like that and like this is all you know." Like in the old days using SAS, like it just, the tools weren't made for that type of work at all. And he was like, yeah, you know, it wasn't the idea of like creating these scripts and everything. It just, you literally like couldn't do it. And so the tooling has created this world where you can kind of have that seamless to deliverable, like deploy to deliverable situation. Right. Um, and so I think the parallels are are there where it was like in the past, people thought statisticians would kind of like sit and make the numbers and then someone else would take those numbers and make something useful with it. And similarly, like the operations person would like, you know, be working and then someone else might create tools to make that easier. And then this idea of like unifying those together and creating tools that allow people to focus on both parts creates this like hybrid role that then needs like a very specific culture to be successful right yeah yeah and so and that that culture is in part the blameless postmortem culture because now you have a bunch of people working on the same problem who need to be able to communicate and so like and they need to be able to talk about when they're running into problems so they can develop tools to make it better and you need to have that like positive communication about problems otherwise it just like descends into madness and like very isolated frustrated people yeah no i think actually i wanted to pick up on a point that uh you just brought up which is that this idea of um you know the, the two things one is that the scale of the problem has increased and 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 as a result there's like this need for clear and constant communication um in terms of what's going on and where it's going. And um, I think that those those two things put together 
demand the creation of tooling and this kind of stuff, you know, because I think if you have one per, if you have one person who does every, let's just imagine a weird case where you have one person that literally does everything, right? Um, they don't need tools that much, right? Because they're just doing everything, right? They can right, communicate, right. they can communicate with themselves with a hundred percent efficiency, right? Uh, for the, right. for the most part like, at any given instant. But I think once you expand the size of that, group you know every person you add is like an exponential you know it's like an exponential number of connections that you add um right and and so there's a need for for developing kind of clean interfaces and um and just more systematic processes i guess yeah exactly and and in the absence of that people even with a bunch of people in one room they're still working essentially in isolation right yeah what, what I found so fascinating about this was that, like, the fact that the tooling and merging the roles looks so similar on each side, and then the fact that this culture makes, like, the blameless post-mortem culture makes it go better. Like, that, I had not set out with that talk to be like, oh, okay, we're going to have this culture because it's similar like I, I intuitively understood the culture would help and then it's like oh right and actually the ingredients are exactly the same on each side like of course it seems like it was going to help because it's basically the same thing going on where we have you know people who weren't traditionally developers or like we're merging together a developer role and a more traditional like statistician or analyst or like operations role right um, right and then uh and I also was like a little smugly happy that they call it DevOps. So they also went with like the developer term. <laughs> so I was like, yay, analysis developer. Like, <laughs> it is like there's something about that word that really works where it's like, oh, yeah, you're developing solutions as you're doing the job. Right. Right. Yeah. So let me ask let me ask you a question. Do you think that the the, the, the kind of evolution of statistical analysis has has paralleled the evolution of operations as described in this article essentially like you know i, I mean maybe when i go back farther than the way this article goes but i think the in terms of like the complexity and the uh size of data analyses ha has evolved over time and that has what would drive this kind of kind of this kind of like this, that would drive what you're talking about in terms of the need for kind of analysis developers. Like, do you think there was not that need in the past or that there was, and we just didn't know it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Well, it's a good question. I'm not totally sure. Like, I don't know how much people were spinning their wheels in the past. <laughs> Although it seems like a lot, right? Yeah. yeah well, I guess it may be a moot point just because uh, it, there were no tools, right? So there were no computers or whatever, you know, so like this kind of a moot point. Um, yeah. But um, I, I, I think, I do think, I feel like, you know, at least in, on the academic side, you know, this, like science has just gotten so much more complicated computationally than it was um, when like you had your one statistician collaborating with their one whatever biologist friend and, you know, the biologist friend might have never seen any of the computations and probably didn't care, right? And I think um, now there's just so much kind of passing it back and forth in terms of the data, in terms of the code, in terms of software. Um, and there's just, you can't have that same, like, I guess my, maybe another way to say it is that I feel like in the past analyses were very, um, I think, I, corporate with a lowercase c, you know, in the sense that like, there were just like, maybe two or three people and they did and they hashed it out and then just did it. Right. Um, whereas now everything is so much more modular and you have like, you have, you might have like 10 people who are just in charge of the analysis. Right. Um, and then there might be like 10 biologists who are collecting data and then there might be, you know, a whole bunch of other people who are like, I don't know, doing other things. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it has to be much more modular. Right. Yeah. Although, but then you, I'm sure you can make that same argument on the operations side too, you know, the scale, like web scale affects both sides of that. Like both of the groups have been affected by like web scale data, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so it's like probably in both cases, the tooling was developed as like, like exactly what you're saying, the scale of the problem kind of increased exponentially fairly quickly. <laughs> and it was like the scramble to catch up. Yeah, and I, actually, I think the driving forces are identical for both data science and oper operations, right? I mean, it's like it's Moore's law, and it's the internet, right? And I think yeah, um, 
Yeah. Well, another thing, another like satisfying moment with this realization that this was so similar was I was talking to this um, VP of engineering, Randy Shoup. It's another person whose name I do not know how to pronounce. S-H-O-U-P. So I think it's Shoup. Um, And when I was talking to him about the content of this talk, it was like he got it immediately. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that all makes sense. And like, yeah. And he was like nodding on. He's like, yep, you have to talk about the concept and not the tools. Like this was they have you seen Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> no, I have not, actually. <laughs> oh. There's this like thing they always repeat where it's like, this has happened before. It will happen again. <laughs> like, it was just this <laughs> moment of like, yep, this is all the same. And like and it's like gratifying to know that like it makes me feel absolutely like we're on the right track with the way we're thinking about it but then also it was like oh wow like this is really similar like like it's just making connections right now you know to be fair to us i feel like the ops people are probably ahead i think they've had like a solid a 10-year head start on us i think yeah um, yeah because sure. i don't think that they i think the problems that they have had to deal with like are, go much farther back i think in terms of yeah. time yeah yeah and the other thing I was thinking about in terms of like, well, why can't, you know, it's been two years, we've kind of been talking about this concept and I'm going around trying to give talks and like socializing it. And, but um, at the end of the day, like we're not writing, I think probably what's helping that take off is that you, well, I guess I don't know, maybe it's a similar problem where you don't often have a bunch of data scientists or statisticians or whatever you want to call it in like one group functioning with like a head who's going around talking at conferences about like this is how we operate like i feel like the operations world they have like velocity conference like they talk about how they work so much that i feel like it was really conducive it was a conducive environment for creating essentially this new field within a field like devops within operations or site reliability engineering within like engineers at google right um and I feel like I, I am a little worried that we're not going to be able to, as a community, like congeal around that as easily because we just work way more isolated. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you about that, like, because you said um, you saw you, know, you saw someone talking about uh, the tools that they use, and it, it was like an eye-opening experience for you. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. you know, working in the corporate world, I, I, I feel like that. Is that? Do you feel like that's a very common situation in the sense that like you 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 occasionally learn about what another group in another company is doing and like you had no idea about it and it's like totally surprising to you? I mean, I just feel like it, there's just inherently this is, doesn't seem like there's as much communication about what we're doing in the corporate world because some of those things you know, they don't want you to know about, right? Good question. <laughs> It's almost like I, I want to think carefully about that. I'm going to like blab out something now, but then I also want to, I'm not sure I have a ton of perspective on that. Like it does seem within tech specifically there, it's like a community of people share what they're working on a lot and like meetups and stuff. And I think that's why open source tooling has taken off because it's like a transferable skill between companies. And so there's this sense of wanting to build up a skill set that's, that is like independent from your job so that when you like have to switch jobs <laughs> right it can like transfer easily right and um and then and so in that sense i actually do feel like there's a there's a huge spirit of wanting to share like this is how we productionize models and and stitch fix has our whole multi-threaded blog where we talk a lot about like what we're doing and our data infrastructure setup and all that and so i actually do feel like people share that aspect of how we work really regularly the like at velocity comp so i remember two people from etsy spoke at velocity comp literally like they were in pjs <laughs> like one piece pjs which i know from etsy not to call onesies because that's actually a trademarked word oh, oh really <laughs> but, okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like essentially what you would think of if you were thinking about onesies um and they were talking about like Everyone at Etsy who was on call had like jawbones that were recording their sleep patterns and they were like analyzing the data of their sleep patterns when they're on call and how to like make sure everyone got a good night's sleep. And it's like, I I, I, can't, I mean, obviously we don't have being on call as often in the data science world, although I'm sure it happens sometimes, right? Yeah. And it just, I don't, I don't think we're there yet at like JSM to have a talk on, you know, <laughs> like 
in like PJs of like, here's like, let's look at sleep patterns. And yeah. I think we should, right? Like we've talked about that a lot, but um, it's, it's interesting to see where the communities have kind of diverged in terms of what they feel like are what you're supposed to be talking about. So um, actually, you know, I, I didn't, in, when I, in my previous comment, I didn't mean to make it sound like, like academia was much better. I just, um, <laughs> uh, because I feel like we do discuss, we, you know, we're very open about like our research, but we're not open about like our process because like, um, we just not, it's not something we talk about either that much because it require a lot of time. And I think, um, it's, but, um, one of the things I actually just come up recently is like, we, I just finished this paper, um, and we just submitted it to the journal and, um, part of me wanted to like go back like this is this paper we started working on it like almost almost a year ago i'd say Mm -hmm. um and it started off the project started off like a completely different project (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean not completely but like it had a very different focus uh and and over the course of a year we we kind of looked at data we kind of made different decisions we tried you know we originally wanted to develop some new methods and the methods didn't really work out and and but then we thought oh well actually this data is really interesting we should answer this other question you know it, it went through all these twists and turns um and ended up being just a fantastic paper i'll, I'll hopefully i can talk about it later but um it's um but i kind of wanted to like preserve in some way like what happened um yeah and all and all the yeah. decisions that we made and why we made them and um and uh, I, um, I, like, I don't know if that's possible. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I was just thinking about that, and I can't even remember why. But it was a similar thought of like, oh, I want to tell the story of how I got here. And actually, I mean, I know I, I always feel like I bring this up like way too much, but that like article I wrote about the name Hillary, it. It was very similar. It was all about the process. It was like, oh, I tried this, and then I noticed this, and then I did this other thing, and goes through kind of how I came to this discovery. Um, And that made for, like, compelling reading. And I hate that scientific papers, you have to, like, hide that all away and just act like, oh, you know what it was? It was talking about this DevOps thing, where I was like, oh, I wish I had a way of expressing, like, you know, here was the first thought, and then this came in, and then it congealed together here. Instead of just adding a line to this opinion analysis paper that's just like, oh, yeah, and this also is in the DevOps world, and that's cool, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the story of them weaving together is more compelling than the end point. Well, I think it depends. It, it depends on who you are, right? I think sometimes people just want the product at the end, right? Right, um, yeah. And not everybody cares about the story. Um, but I think the people who are in the business probably care about it more. Um, mm-hmm. Because it, that's like, it's kind of like, well, we want to know like what we learned from this experience in some sense, right? And, yeah, um, yeah. And it's hard to know, it's hard to translate that just in like the, in the finished product. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes you can discuss, you can talk about it a little bit in the, in some discussion or whatever, but you don't get the whole history. And I think, um, uh, the problem is that like, I don't like nowhere do I have it written down the whole history, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just for your own personal, you should write a blog post about it. About what? About this, the history. <laughs> But I would have to like, of this project. you know, I would have to like interview all the people involved and like, hey, do you remember that meeting? Like, do you remember what we talked about? Like, I have to say that is where the industry and like specifically I'm thinking of people with MBAs, like the one of the many values that they add is like very meticulous minute taking and note taking and like emails and agendas and like all of that stuff actually ends up being really helpful when you're trying to reconstruct a timeline like that. Yeah, um, I imagine it would be. And I, and I do know that like there are a lot of faculty who like, especially when they're working with students and postdocs, they have them, you know, write an agenda for every meeting. And then after the meeting, they write up, they write up the notes and like, here's what happened and here's what we decided and et cetera, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a slog, but it's so worth it. It, it does not feel worth it. It never in the moment feels worth it. And then it is so worth it. <laughs> so maybe that's the <laughs> lesson that to, I've like, learned train here. yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Blameless postmortem of this situation. Start taking minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, um, I feel like we've kind of wandered far from where we started but um part of me was like i've been thinking for a long time about how to make data analysis case studies um and i and for the longest time like i've struggled with it because 
ultimately I realized it's not possible because we don't, well, not everybody records this kind of information, you know? Um, and I think to make a good case study, you need to have like situations where the decision-making process is kind of on display. Um, and, uh, and if you don't record that information, then it's basically, it's not possible. Um, yeah. And so, well, again, like the DevOps world, that's what's so great is that, and I, I'd want to, I wanted to make this point earlier, which is that like someone like John Osball, the CTO at Etsy, who is kind of, who's, I think he was VP of ops when I was there. He like, he really, he spent a lot of time socializing the idea of doing blameless postmortems and teaching people how to do it. And, and that is very much a, where you sit down and you write out very detailed timelines of exactly what happened and you communicate it out. And so I think this all, this does end up coming to culture a lot and like, you know, infusing good culture. It's a lot more about culture than you think it might be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of data analysis case studies, I think now more than in the past. And I think people think that, oh, there are all these like data analysis case studies, but most data analysis case studies are not w what I would think of as case studies. They're just like, here's a problem, here's some data, and here's here's an analysis, right? Right, um, right. And that's not, in my opinion, a case study. Like a, a case study is like, here are the decisions that you have to make. Here's some information. Here's the information that you have to make those decisions. And, uh, yeah. and so, and what decision do you make and, and why? Um, and, um, and I think that is hard to capture because you kind of need to have like a, you have to go back and for any given analysis, you have to go back in time and like, and, and talk to people who were there and be like, what happened? Why'd you go this way? Um, yeah. And I think this will be an especially hard problem for this community to tackle because it's not, I mean, to the point about culture, this is not something that you can just write a tool that does this all for you. Like someone will try <laughs> and this idea of like, oh yeah, like like if we just like, like engineering the solution and being like, yeah, if we just create this tool that records and you like have to every day put in a decision and blah, blah, blah. But like, it's like, that's not gonna solve the, you can't create a tool to convince people that it's really important to, um, think about the way decisions are made and that really comes down to the culture and that's where i think there's been huge success in the devops world because they clearly care about it and we should do what we can to try to impose it or like not impose it but like diffuse it i don't know like friendly impose <laughs> right Make yeah, people want yeah. It. Yeah. yeah and like and that's gonna be harder i the thing that i feel like both motivated and a little bit like it's, it's like the good type of motivation when you're like, oh, this is like a problem because you know every company has a CTO, but not every company has like a chief algorithms officer like Stitch Fix does. But I think we might be one of the only companies that has a chief algorithms officer, um, and so it, it's like there's less there's less management. And like, I was thinking about this, even in companies with a huge number of data scientists like Facebook, if they're distributed, you you still might not have that sort of unifying like cultural presence. Um, and so creating a culture within the data science community seems much harder than creating a culture within these other communities just because of the way the companies are structured. Um, and so I'm, I'm part motivated, part worried that it won't happen to like try to get this out there, right? Yeah. I don't think it's safe to assume that it's just gonna happen. Oh, I am certain that it won't. Like I am certain just having seen how much work John Osball put in it to make it very successful in one company, it's a huge amount of work and you have to have people constantly pushing you know, because it's just it's the type of work people don't want to do, like sitting down and talking through a problem. And, you know, it's like it's you have to, like, socialize engineers who want to focus on code to step out of that and think critically about decisions. And the talented ones will understand that this is all like to make easier decisions in the future. But, you know, you have to you have to have experience to see that. And data science is such a new field that you don't have a lot of experienced people out there. Um, That's right. Yeah. 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 And then I feel like there's this whole other discussion that I wanted to get into eventually, but we don't have to today, <laughs> which is that I think that it's even harder problem than DevOps in some ways, because it's like the whole like art versus science or, you know, like the music, your like music analogy 
I think it's probably also true that we're dealing with a more complex problem than operations. That might sound like, I don't know, mean or something, but it's not that it's, I think that the issue is that there's more space for creativity within this data science application than within operations. Well, maybe, let me take a stab in the sense that maybe another way to say this is that this is a, maybe we're dealing with a problem that we don't understand quite as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that we need more time to kind of figure it out, but we can't just, we have to like spend time trying to figure it out, trying to figure that out. You know what I mean? You can't just like assume, Oh, one day we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And the solution will necessarily include like, like cultural things. <laughs> I don't know how to put that better, but it'll be, there's going to be process and everyone hates process, but there has to be process. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I think, uh, we, I think, I think data science is tuck is, is still very, it's, uh, kind of in the mode of like, um, of the technical aspects are the most important aspects. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to take time to evolve out of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we're trying, you know, we're paving the way now. <laughs> <laughs> episode by episode, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But yeah, it's a, I did want to call out there was someone had sent us an email talking about exactly this. It was a really nice email about, you know, oh, where does, I remember one of the questions was like, where does science end and culture begin? And I think that's a great question. And we, I don't, I have no idea the answer to that. And I'm not even sure like anyone necessarily has an answer to that. And it was, it was very thought provoking. It was someone who was coming from like a history perspective. I can't quite remember. But... Uh, oh yes. Yeah. He's one of our yeah our listeners. Yeah. 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 So, um, I would love to dive into that more too. <laughs> we can, we can like also hold off for future episodes. You know? Yeah. So we can't, we can't blow all our topics on one episode, right? I know. I know. <laughs> Cool. Um, yeah. All right. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I got my like rant in. I was excited. <laughs> um, we haven't had a good like Hillary rant in quite some time. Yeah, yeah. This one I'm. This one I feel really. Str I yeah. I feel this is like my battle call or whatever you call that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess. I guess I want to walk away from this with like. I. It's been an evolution to get from thinking about it to talking about the like blameless postmortem culture in that talk. And I just feel encouraged that this is a very fruitful path to go down where it's like, I feel like the solution is making itself clearer and clearer the more I'm on this path. And so it's like, I mean, the more than we as a community, it's not just me at all. Um, and so it's, I think that I feel optimistic, but yeah, the implementation is where I get nervous. <laughs> Yeah, and that's going to be, the devil's going to be in the details. That's going to be a, a long slog. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool. All right. All right. Well, I don't know. That seems like a pretty good episode to me. 